Good morning, everybody. Would you please turn with me to Daniel chapter 2? We're going to be in verses 31 through 49 this morning. Daniel chapter 2, 31 through 49. Um, if you don't have a Bible, there should be one in a seat back in front of you uh, somewhere. You can raise your hand and a neighbor can pass you one. While you're uh, making your way to Daniel chapter 2, verses 31 through 49, I just want to give you a quick recap of where we are. If you remember last week, we left off uh, in the middle of Daniel revealing the dream, that de- uh, the inter- actually de- just the dream part of the dream that King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon had. Um, if you remember, uh, as we started chapter 2 last Sunday, uh, Daniel had been in, in Babylon for about three years so far. He, along with his three Jewish friends, were captives Uh, King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon went and captured uh, basically Jerusalem. And in the first wave, he took Daniel and his friends back to uh, Babylon, where he then uh, began to indoctrinate him for three years. But Daniel remained holy, even though he went through all the uh, basically what I call Babylon University. And uh, so basically, uh, they were captives. and, And they're basically, Daniel and his three compadres there are about 17 to 19 years old by the time they get out of uh, Babylon training school to be a wise man, uh, and now they are serving, beginning their serving as a as a, an advisor to the pagan king of Babylon, and so they're considered to be rookie wise men, and uh, and we see at the end of chapter one that Daniel and his three friends were gifted by the Lord. They were gifted above and beyond everybody else, and, and it it points out specifically that Daniel was gifted in visions and dreams, and so in the prophetic. Uh, visions and dreams, the interpretation and also receiving them. And so it was at the end of those three years that it just so happened that King Nebuchadnezzar begins to have, uh, he actually has a dream. And uh, it was so important to him. He, he sensed the significance of it. It was so profound to him. He lost sleep over it and, and he really wanted to know what it meant. And so he called all the wise men of Babylon, which would have been from the school that uh, that, that uh, Daniel and his friends were there, but uh, they called all the wise men of Babylon to, to see if they could give him both the dream and the interpretation. And so in chapter 2, uh, we were told in verse 2 that these were the magicians, the enchanters, the sorcerers, and the Chaldeans of Babylon. And so those are the wise men of Babylon that they brought in. And this is the kind of education that Daniel would have had in in Babylon, uh, in these types of ways, in uh, magic and in enchanting and sorcery and Chaldeans and the literature and all the culture that was Babylonian. And so the king summoned them and they said, hey, listen, you've got to give me both the, the dream and the interpretation. I mean, that's difficult. You've got to read my mind and then you can tell me what it means. Uh, and he promised great rewards to them if they could give the interpretation, but he also promised certain death and the destruction of their homes if they did not and so the king required both the dream and the interpretation. And so after going back and forth with the king, they finally say in verse 11 there in chapter 2, the thing that the king asks is difficult, and no one can show it to the king except the gods whose dwelling is not with flesh. Very significant. They realize that the answer to everything that the king wanted was not with humans. It had to be some kind of divine revelation that would be able to reveal that to the king. Well, as we find out about King Nebuchadnezzar, he does not take no lightly, and so he makes good on his promise to go kill them. And so he sends the captain of the guard to go get everybody and to go kill 
all of the wise men of Babylon. And Daniel, being of the graduating class of the wise men, is among those whose life is threatened, even though he was, probably wasn't a part of that meeting in front of the king to try to determine all this, because he was a rookie. And so the executioner comes into Daniel's room and he finds Daniel basically and he and his companions and he simply asks the chief, uh, hey, what's, what's going on? And, he's, and he, why is the king in such a hurry? And so basically the executioner, yeah, the chief of the captain's guard, explains the situation to him. And somehow God gives Daniel favor in this situation as well as he had before. And you know, the guard uh, basically talks with Daniel. Daniel says, listen, I'll give the interpretation of the dream to the king. Uh, and so they go and they basically, I think, believe, I believe that the impression is that they went and set up an appointment to see the king. And so it's then that Daniel comes back and he and his friends begin to pray and ask God for the interpretation, which God gives in the night through a vision to Daniel. Remember, he's gifted in this way. He's gifted and he's prepared for the moment that God has been setting up. And so here he is, he has the interpretation and they go before the king. And this is where we left off last week where Daniel is humbly before the king and he starts telling the king what he's actually thinking on his bed before he even uh, before he even had the dream and then he starts to tell him the dream. So let's pick up in verse 31. He said, You saw, O king, and behold, a great image. And this image, mighty and of exceeding brightness, stood before you and it appears, and its appearance was frightening. <clears throat> the head of this image was of fine gold, its chest and arms of silver, its middle and thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron, partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut out by no human hand, and it struck the image on its feet of iron clay, and it broke them in pieces. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold all together were broken in pieces, and it became like chaff of the summer of threshing floors, and, and the wind carried them away uh, so that not a trace of them could be found. But the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. And so Daniel humbly and miraculously gives Nebuchadnezzar the dream that no one in the land could give. And the dream that the king had was of an image. It was of a statue. It seems like it's of a man. And uh, I don't have it up there. I forgot to give it. But basically, it's, it's a head of gold and, and, and a chest and arms of silver and legs of iron. And then as you get down to the feet, you've got feet mixed with iron and clay. And then there was a stone that flew out of nowhere. It wasn't hewn by human hands like the rest of, of the image was. Uh, and it flew out and it hit the, the feet. And then all of a sudden, the whole thing crumbles and kind of like uh, walla walla after harvest, all the chaff just kind of blows away, and, and that's basically what happens to this image. And, and this, this rock that it hit, the stone that it hit the feet, turned into a great mountain. And that's the picture that Daniel says uh, to Nebuchadnezzar. Can you imagine that? Having a dream, and someone actually gives you the dream in exact, vivid detail of, of what it was. This was the dream. This one Daniel says in verse 36. He says, this was the dream, and now we'll, we'll tell the king the interpretation. He says, that was your dream, and now let's go on to the interpretation. I mean, this is awesome. And he repeats it again. He, and at the very end, he goes, that, the interpretation is sure. You can take it to the bank. So God has gifted Daniel powerfully, just as he has Joseph before him. And 
Now he's going to move into the interpretation. We kind of read through that first part last week, so I won't spend too much time going over that. But remember that the dream is only the first part that the king asked for. He didn't just ask for the dream. He asked for the interpretation. What does it mean? And that's where we left off. What does it mean? Verse 37 through 45 gives us the meaning of it. And even then, it's a little bit difficult to understand. And this is why Daniel comes back into it in chapter 7. And then you have, through the rest of Daniel, it kind of explains it in more depth. And then you get into Revelation, and it explains it in even greater depth. And so this is the beginning of the understanding of this dream, and it, and it culminates basically at the end of the world. And so he says there in 37 through 45, which I'm going to read and then we'll go back over it, but it says, You, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hand he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven, making you rule over them all, uh, you are the head of gold. <clears throat> And another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you, and yet a third kingdom of bronze which shall rule over all the earth. And there shall be a fourth kingdom strong as iron, because iron breaks uh, to pieces and shatters all things. And, and like iron that crushes it shall break and crush all these. And as you saw the feet and toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it just as you saw iron mixed with the soft clay. Verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. And as you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed. Nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. And it shall stand forever. Verse 45, just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this? The dream is certain, and its interpretation is sure. So, the interpretation that is given to Daniel by God of the dream of Nebuchadnezzar 2,600 years ago is the history of the world in advance. We have world history laid out for us in advance, right here in the book of Daniel. And if you are like me and you start reading this, you start wondering what in the world all this is, and it takes you on a magnificent adventure that shows just how awesome God is and that the Word of God is absolutely the Word of God because it tells the future before it happens. It's amazing, and it tells it in great accuracy. Now, this morning, I could go into great depth, but I'm going to save the, the greater depth and the historical accuracy and all these types of things, the actual people and the events and, and how all this works out uh, when we get to chapter 7 because that it wraps back around and goes into greater depth then. And I'm going to talk about 
Alexander the Great, and we're going to talk about all these types of people when we get back to chapter 7 in more depth. So if you're looking for that, hang on. I'm going to, I'm going to do it in the pace that Daniel does it. The, the less he reveals here, the less I'm going to teach. The more he reveals, the more I'm going to teach. Amen? Uh, one person said amen. <clears throat> All right, no, that's lazy. Uh, listen, I got, I got to hold back here, otherwise it's going to be done. So the interpretation is given to Daniel, and God showed Nebuchadnezzar the progress of the world before it happened. Four kingdoms that would come to the pinnacle of power, and one after another, a kingdom after another, they would take over one another, and uh, kingdoms of men raised up by God, taken down by God, and ultimately, finally taken over by the kingdom of God that would be established. That is everything in, in a nutshell. A fifth kingdom that would have no end. Never destroyed and standing forever. That's, that's the short of it. And so Daniel begins in verse 37 and 38 where he starts to speak about the first five of these. If you want to take notes, this is the time. He first describes the head of gold. He says, you, O king, the king of kings, to whom the God of heavens has given the kingdom, the power, the might, and the glory. And into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of the heaven, making you rule over them all. You are the head of gold. He says to Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. Now, if you're reading that, I want you to know that I want to spend like eight weeks on just those two verses. I'm not going to. Do you see a lot that's packed in there about that? Why is he telling a pagan king that he has the kingdom, the glory, the power, and the honor? Who does that sound like? To who gets that? Jesus. That should ring a bell. Adam was given dominion over the earth. Adam fell, and so the kings of man follow Adam and they are given certain power, authority, glory, and dominion, but a second Adam is coming and his kingdom shall never end. There's a lot there, everybody. There's a lot there, but I'm gonna I'm gonna kind of not get into all that this morning and kind of stick on point, even though I'm veering off at the moment. But the first thing we need to know, just verse 37, 38 about the head of gold, the first thing you need to know is that the head of gold is Nebuchadnezzar. It is the Babylonian kingdom. It represents a king and a kingdom. So Nebuchadnezzar in the kingdom of Babylon was the first of these kingdoms 2,600 years ago, lasted 80 years. Secondly, we need to understand who is raising up the kingdoms, who is taking down the kingdoms, who's the power behind all this, who is orchestrating world history. Who established the kingdom of Babylon? Now, if you are King Nebuchadnezzar, what do you think your answer to this is? Yeah, that's me. Of course it's me. I'm awesome. That's King Nebuchadnezzar's answer. We know this. And I can imagine Nebuchadnezzar's perspective is that because his father was king, he became king. And because he's militarily awesome, because he's financially sound, because uh, he's politically savvy, because he's got everything in a row, everybody's crushed, everybody's fearful, everybody's subjected to him, that that's why he's king. Because of him. Pretty interesting. And we actually know he thinks it's him because later in chapter 4, verse 30, King Nebuchadnezzar, he's standing up on his palace, and by his way, the king of Babylon was awesome. We'll get into that later. 
Ancient Babylon was awesome. You had the Hanging Gardens, one of the marvels of, of the world, uh, wonders of the world. And he's standing there looking over his kingdom, and he says, is not Gra- uh, Babylon, is this, <laughs> sorry, is this great, ba- is, excuse me, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my might, mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? He's just talking to himself, as kings do, about how awesome he is and everything that he's done. And sadly, this is after this dream is revealed to Nebuchadnezzar. He learns the hard way, and we'll get that when we get there. But he is so full of himself, and at that point in chapter 4, God has to severely humble him, and he loses his mind for seven years and comes back and then gives God the glory. But Daniel lets Nebuchadnezzar know right here in chapter 2 that it was actually God who raised him up. We know that from the prophets that God said that Nebuchadnezzar is a servant of God. Not in that he serves God, in that he serves the purposes of God. That makes sense. Verse 37 here in chapter 2 says, The God of heavens has given the kingdom and the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, and the birds of heaven. That's the kingdom, the land, the people, the animals, even the birds. That's the kingdom. You're ruling. That's dominion. That's Adam's stuff. That's what God gave to Adam to rule. And here, God has given this ability to rule to Nebuchadnezzar. The rule over all. And this is timely for us as believers, don't you think? As we are in an election cycle. We need to be mindful of this right now. I would pray that we are actually going to go out and vote. And that we're going to vote for candidates that have a that would support a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview. That's who we want to vote for. And they aren't going to be perfect people, by the way. And I have my thoughts about the Democratic platform and how they are godless in so many areas. You know, I've got to say this. They are pro-abortion, pro-transsexuality, pro-everything that Jesus came to pretty much come and die for. Check your heart. And the Republicans aren't far behind. Check your heart. So I'm just saying that we we need to pray and ask God, God, help our nation, and we need to vote according to what the Holy Spirit leads us to do. Obviously, I'm not endorsing a candidate, but I'm letting you know this is it's nasty business out there. But in the end, no matter who sits on whatever throne church, whomever sits on whatever throne, whoever's in charge, however the election goes, we need to know that it is God who raises up rulers and gives them authority. It is ultimately God who who lets leaders ascend. And keep in mind, Nebuchadnezzar was not the great good guy, was he? This is why the prophet Habakkuk had real difficulty, as Gary was sharing, I believe, in maybe one of your devotions, right? Just, how could you use such an evil person? 
in such a situation. I think that's why everybody's freaking out right now is everybody first has a misconception of evil, but also, um, you know, how could this, how could this be? How could this go on? And he couldn't understand why and all these types of things. Habakkuk couldn't see beyond the current circumstances. He couldn't see God's big picture. He couldn't see his grand plan, how he uses Everything in this world is set up to accomplish his plan, his, his will. The world is the backdrop of the revelation of his son and his glory. This is all about him. And I know we get into, you know, why is there evil and all these things? Why does God allow evil? There is no evil God couldn't forgive. He couldn't show mercy. He couldn't show all these attributes of who he is. I'm not trying to justify why there's evil. I'm saying that there's a reason behind it, and God only knows and is above my pay grade. But seriously, God's grand plan, and sometimes I get frustrated with it because I'm in the moment. Anybody else? Why isn't everything rosy? Why isn't it going on? You kind of know, but you still get frustrated. Habakkuk was frustrated really frustrated. Can anybody relate? Yes. I'm sure the whole nation goes, yes. But we see here that God is sovereign. Verse 21, if you just go back a little bit in Daniel 2, verse 21, he says, who changes times and seasons? Who does that? God changes the times and the seasons. And what else does he do? Daniel chapter 2, 21, and he sets up kings. He does it for his purposes. You see, we have an election, but it is God's will that ultimately prevails. Because out of this, all of this is not about us. Like I said, it is about him. History is the script. In so much as it is the backdrop to the revelation of his son and his eternal kingdom and his glory. He sets up kings and he takes them down, church. You vote according to what would honor God in your heart. But ultimately, he does what honors him. And Paul takes us again in, in Romans 13, 1, and he says, just, just to give you a little New Testament flavor, he says, and let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Why? For there is no authority except from who? Whom? God. From God. Every authority, from the worst to the best in our minds, is established by God, allowed by God. Why? Because He is sovereign, He is in charge. And those that exist, in positions of authority, have been instituted by God himself. And here's the thing, just in case you're wondering. And will God will adjudge them according to that authority they've been given. We see that in the church. Let not many of you be teachers. Why? Because you will receive the greater condemnation. You will receive the greater judgment. He who's been given much is going to be required much. Let me say that every single ruler in this land will answer to God to a great degree. There will be justice. 
all those things might not turn out like we had hoped, don't lose hope, church. Amen? Don't lose hope. Why? Because we win. Read the rest. Read the end. There's a kingdom coming that will never end. There's a kingdom coming. Our king is coming, if indeed he is your king, right? Amen? And he invites all to be a part of his kingdom. And in the end, the king of kings, the king of the world, will rule over all the kingdoms. He will crush them. They will turn to dust. And they will fly away into nothingness. And as Psalm 1 says, you will see them no more. They won't be in the congregation of the righteous. But we will stand by grace alone. God is sovereign over the kings of the kingdom. I want you to keep that in mind as we start to look at all that's going on. It's his ultimate plan. So first, Nebuchadnezzar and the kingdoms of Babylon are the head of gold. It was God who sovereignly gave Nebuchadnezzar his kingdom, the land, the people to rule over, the birds of the air, the beasts of the field, all these types of things. But it would come to an end. Kingdoms coming to an end. Babylon came to an end. We know this. Verse 39, another kingdom inferior to you shall rise after you. Daniel is faithful to the interpretation. You're standing before King Nebuchadnezzar and you're telling him, your rule is coming to an end. There's going to be one that's coming after you. It's going to be inferior to yours, but nevertheless, it's coming. Your kingdom shall end. True prophets stay faithful to interpret the news, whether it's good or bad. Amen? Your kingdom is going to end, Nebuchadnezzar, but another one's coming that's inferior to you. So verse 39 speaks of another kingdom that comes after the Babylonians, a kingdom that is represented by silver arms and a silver chest there. So a little lesser precious of a a metal. We know the second kingdom to be the Medo-Persian Empire. We see that in Daniel chapter 5. At the end of Daniel chapter 5, the Medes come in and they take over Babylon in a night. There was a lot of other things going on, but Daniel, uh, we, get a, we get a snapshot of into the palace, how they snuck in and, and took over the palace in a night. And so the Babylonian Empire lasts 80 years, counting from Nebuchadnezzar's rule. And then all of a sudden, uh, King Darius the Mede comes in and takes over ruling as the, as the uh, head cheese there. You know, Nebuchadnezzar, uh, he ruled for about 43 years of those 80 years and before he died and then his son was king and then he was assassinated. His son as king is assassinated. And then it just kept on getting, everybody kept getting killed. There was just this tumult. And, and, and then finally this guy named Belshazzar, uh, who was a kind of a co-regent of Babylon, gets set up. And we read about him in chapter 5 and that's when he is then killed by the Medes. So we see the end of the Babylonian Empire taken over by the Medo-Persian Empire. It's identified as Daniel as inferior. Not inferior in, 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 in strength. Obviously, they took over Babylon, but inferior in glory. And that's the idea there. In influence. You know, Babylon, Babylon was an incredibly influential uh, uh, system in that its false religions were all kind of started and centered in Babylon. And they influenced us today. So many of our Christian uh, 
you know, holidays like Christmas, they have pagan roots, and some of those pagan roots are Babylonian. Can't get away from it. It's stuck, and it's and that and that's the idea is that this kingdom, this glorious kingdom, is going to be so influential. Babylon is going to be so influential that its false religion is going to permeate all the kingdoms of men all the way to the end, to where when it's revived, basically, when there's a kingdom that's revived, we'll get to there in a minute, but. When it's revived, we have, like it's called Mystery Babylon. In, in the economic system, it's called Great Babylon. It's, it gets, it's highly influential, and so these, are, uh, these kingdoms that follow kind of take on a, a form of Babylon in various ways. They embody the false religion of Babylon. And you can read about that in Revelation 17 and uh, other things when we get there. So the head of gold is the superior one, followed by the second one, which is the arms of silver and the uh, chest of silver. So the Babylonians, then the Medes. And they lasted for about 200 years. And we'll read more about them in chapter 7 as well, the Medo. And then, and then we find out that the Medo-Persian Empire fell as well. Verse 39, Yet a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth, and we know from world history, the third kingdom represented by bronze was the empire of Greece, the, Greek, the Greeks. They came on the scene. And how many of you know the history of Alexander the Great? He wasn't called Alexander the Great because he did nothing. He conquered the world by like 33 years old or something like that. And he died in Babylon like because he was so upset he didn't have any more places to conquer. Alexander the Great, he went from, the kingdom went from basically Western Europe all the way to India, and even went down to Egypt and took a city. How many of you heard of Alexandria? Yeah, named after him. And so that, that phrase, rule over all the earth, was that he conquered the known lands of the day. Mind you, this is being told before it happened. And you're going to be blown away when we get to chapter 7, because it goes into great detail about these events and who these people are and how the conquests happen. And you can't escape what happens in history. So much so that the rebuttal is that they, it must have been written after the fact. Higher criticism, we can get into that, but not true. It's incredibly accurately detailed. So Alexander the Great, the Greeks, that fast, rapid, uh, kingdom of bronze there, so to speak, went and took over the Medo-Persian Empire. I'm looking forward to getting into more detail with you, that, with, with you when we get there. But after Alexander died in Babylon, and the kingdom was divided into basically four things among four generals, they couldn't hold it. And then another kingdom rose up and took them out. Guess what kingdom that is? Iron. Kingdom of iron, which was Rome. Rome came in, and we're, we're in biblical times almost right now, right? Or in that section uh, that began right just before biblical times and then went on 1,400 years, basically. Verse 40, And there shall be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And so this speaks of strength. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush all these. And Rome did. With their armies, I mean, they just went up and down everywhere they could go and they crushed everything in sight. They laid siege to places that I wouldn't even want to 
you know, see on Google Maps. I mean, it's just like they just spent incredible time and energy uh, dominating vast areas of land, and it became such a vast domination of so much land all the way from Europe, all the way down to Africa, out into the Middle East, that they couldn't handle it all. And we know that uh, it became a weak situation. And in, in, in verse 41, if you just read 41 with me, it says, And as you saw the feet and the toes partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with soft clay. And so it becomes a weakened kingdom, even though they, they conquered with strength, it became weakened. And we know from history that Diocletian in, in 285 decided that Rome was too big to manage. And so he divided it into eastern and Western Rome. That's why you have Eastern Orthodox and you have uh, Western Catholicism to this day, right? But those were divided. And we know from history that the West lasted about 500 years or so, and the East lasted to basically 1453, where uh, Constantinople was taken over finally by the Turks. So long-lasting influence of the Roman Empire. And we know that the religious wing of that, the Holy Roman Empire, the Holy Roman Church, Catholic Church, still has influence today. And so Rome was strong to begin with. It was like iron, strong militarily, but it became weak. It became brittle, and it finally broke apart. And there's a lot of great books about as to why, and I encourage you to read a little bit of historical stuff there. But in the end, they were divided, and they eventually fell. And the image of iron, the iron legs of that fourth kingdom, it changes in verse 42. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. As you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, so... They will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together just as iron does not mix with the clay. And so Daniel goes from the legs of iron uh, that were divided, and then Daniel describes the toes. And, and just so you know, something's happening here. Something's switching. Because they're no longer speaking about the Roman Empire as we know it. Daniel's switching is he, in his mind. It's actually something different. And the reason why I know that is because I read ahead. Daniel chapter 7 speaks of this. He goes back to it. And he talks about the toes are like our ten toes. And this is something over and over, and it's speaking of kings and kingdoms that come out of the Roman Empire. But it's not around the Roman Empire time. This is a revived Roman Empire. We know this because of Daniel chapter 7. We also know this because of Revelation chapter 17. Talks about 10 kings. They're going to come out of the Roman Empire. And you're going, it's a revived Roman Empire. It's going to somehow come back in some form. And this is what we're waiting for now. This is where we are in the in the history of Daniel's thing, we're waiting for some kind of revived ten-king federation that is going to be around at the return of Christ. And it is going to embody all of 
Babylon and all these things, and they're going to gather together and they're going to make war and they're going to go all over the place and dominate things. And the head, the person who comes out of that is going to be the Antichrist, who's going to be the, the ruler of this confederation. Now, you talk about that 30 years ago and you're going, what are you talking about the, the Roman Empire revived? You know, but we look to Europe today and what do we see? We got Brexit going on. We got people leaving. Leaving what? Leaving Europe that got reunified. And so these things can happen. I'm not saying that's it. But I am saying, look, there, is, there are things happening that are we, are, we are waiting for that time for Rome to be reunited or some version of 10 nations here. And you can read ahead in, in, in chapter 7, verse 24, as well as Revelation 17, 12 through 14. You can read ahead about these 10 toes. They represent 10 kings or 10 horns in other places. And they do. They make up a revived, what I believe, Roman Empire. Some think it might be a different place. But a revived Roman Empire that will be around prior to the return of Christ. And with them... The Antichrist will come for them to make war. They're going to be united in conquest, but they're ultimately going to fall apart. And the reason why they fall apart is because clay and iron just don't stick together, just like water and oil. It's not going to stick. And so really quickly, let's pull back, big picture. Head of gold, Babylon, coming on. Chest, arms of silver, Medo-Persian Empire, coming on. Chest, thighs of bronze, Greeks, gone. Legs of iron, Romans, divided, gone. And then the legs that turn into feet, which are mixed with iron and clay, is that revived Roman Empire, ten kings, ten nations. And that's what we're looking for now on, the, on the, this scene. That's what's coming next. Why do we know this? Because verse 44 and in the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. This confederacy, uh, confederacy of ten nations will be revived right before the return of Christ, right before the stone that was cut without hands comes and hits those nations and all the kingdoms of man fall away like dust. And that rock becomes a great mountain that will never move. That's speaking of the kingdom of God. Jesus Christ is coming back and he will strike the nations and he will rule with a rod of iron. It's all going to be done. And we're waiting. The stone from out of this world is coming, and it shall break, verse 44, it shall break in pieces all, the, all these kingdoms and bring them to an end. All those kingdoms of men, all the false religious systems, everything that is anti-Christ that is embodied in our false government rebellion, so to speak. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. Just as you saw that the stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, 
the clay, the silver, and the gold. This is speaking of that fifth and final kingdom. This is the millennial return of Christ, the millennial reign of Christ. I believe in the literal return of Jesus Christ to the earth where he will establish his kingdom for a thousand years. Read it in the book of Revelation. You can't get around it. It's happening. Jesus Christ, the rock, is going to return and crush all opponents. And he's going to begin his thousand-year reign on earth. And at the end of that time, he will create a new heavens and a new earth. He will hand over all the kingdoms to the Father. And it's going to be awesome, and we'll get there. Again, we're going to go into more depth about this later. But Daniel, after describing all of this to the king Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and God let this pagan king know what was coming. And what do you think Nebuchadnezzar's response is? Verse 45. Well, uh, this is uh, actually Daniel tells him, A great God has made known to the king what shall be after this. And the dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. You can take it to the bank. World history in advance, Nebuchadnezzar. This is what's coming. Verse 45. Verse 46. Then King Nebuchadnezzar fell upon his face. And paid homage to paid homage to Daniel. Bummer. And commanded that an offering and incense be offered up to him. The king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings. Your God. Not my God, your God. I pray he gets to the other end. We'll see there in chapter 7. But truly, your God is a God of gods and Lord of kings and revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. And then the king gave Daniel high honors, just as he had promised, and many great gifts, and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Just like Joseph, in one day, he went from lowest man on the totem pole to highest in all the land because God had a plan. Daniel didn't ask for any of that, but God had prepared him for it. He gave him the gift of being in charge of governing Babylon, basically, he was second in command. And he was in charge of all the wise guys. Right? And Daniel was just given this honor. Verse 49. And I love Daniel. He doesn't forget where he came from. He doesn't forget the people that meant something to him when he was esteemed. Who else did he bring up with him? And Daniel made a request to the king. And he appointed Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon. But Daniel remained at the king's court. See, Daniel was given this control and power over Babylon. And what did Daniel do with that? He delegated it out to his faithful friends. He said, you guys go ahead and do that. And he remained counsel to the king. I think God... Put it on Daniel's heart. You know, quite often we can be given really great things, but sometimes you've got you've to let those things go, even though they're, they're awesome and honoring, because God had Daniel do something that was far more important 
be next to the king and give him counsel because, well, he's ahead of gold. <laughs> and he need godly people in those situations, amen? We're going to see Daniel's going to actually face a lot of backlash, but he made that request. You know, church, ultimately, you know, as we read these things, the kingdoms of men, they're falling one by one. America's going away, church. America's going away. It's going to go to the dust of, of history. It's kind of sad because it's where we grew up, where we live, we love things. And it's not as if we don't vote. It's not as if we don't do the things, you know, that we good citizens do. And we pray and we care and we stand up for what's right and all that stuff. But we know the big picture. This is going, this is inevitable. And we, and we do pray right now for God's mercy, that he would relent. But even in knowing that, we know the big, pan, the big plan. We know that there's a day that's coming when we aren't going to have to worry about any of this. We're going to stand in a kingdom where there is, there's only one voice that we need to listen to. Where there's love. There's no hate. There's no sin. There's no racism. There's no abuse of authority. There's no neglect of authority. There's no voter fraud. There's no political parties. It's just righteousness. I long for it, church. I long for it. I miss home. Any of you miss home already? We want it to be here. But let's, listen, it's not coming until he comes. But what he has done instead is he's given the world a slice of his kingdom in you. That when they run into Christians, what the world is to see is what it's like in his kingdom. The love, the forgiveness, the patience, the truth, the love for truth, humility, confessing when we're wrong, esteeming one another above ourselves, bearing with one another, all those things, right? It's our witness. So this is why the church is the church. We are part of the kingdom of God, us along with all the other true believers in Jesus Christ who, who receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior now who bow our knee to our king now in this realm. And yeah, we submit to our government and we do the best we can, but ultimately we submit to the Lord in obedience and our allegiance is to him. And so I just pray that in this season that, that we, would, we would shine his love, his light, his truth, his, his hope in all the situations we find because this is not our home. We make it the best we can. We honor the Lord. We love one another. But this is not our home. There is a kingdom coming, and one day we will stand. Flip over to Psalm 1 in closing. This is off script, but I just want to close with this. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. 
but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit. In its season, its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like what? Chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not what? Stand in the judgment. That means they won't make it through the judgment. Nor sinners in the congregation of the what? Righteous. They won't be there. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous. But the wake of the wicked will what? Will perish. Let's bow our heads. Lord, thank you for revealing to us just the history of the world in advance, just a slight picture of it. We look forward to you revealing more as we go through the book of Daniel. Lord, let us hold fast to your lordship, to your kingdom now, the spiritual kingdom that you've set in our heart, that one day that that kingdom that is as sure as the sun is setting and rising will one day be like a mountain. And we will be with you, standing on it. We want to thank you so much, Lord, for the opportunity you've given us to walk by faith. How precious it is, God. It is the greatest adventure. It is the most difficult and yet exciting thing. Lord, we were made to walk by faith. We were made to live by your voice to trust in you and to seek your kingdom above all else and lord that day that you that you call us home or the day that you touch down lord and however you have that all figured out lord it's going to be awesome when the reality of what we believe is is going to be like the concrete of, of the floor we're standing on we can't wait for your return, Lord. But until then, we pray for the lost, people that we love, Lord. They would come to know you now. They would repent and believe upon Jesus Christ, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. And Jesus, you prove, you've proven that you are not of this world. You came the first time, Lord, and you showed the world that you did things that no one else could. You healed the sick. You raised the dead. You stopped wind. You cast out demons. And you rose from the dead on the third day. And you're coming back. So we long for your return. But we ask for your mercy. And so we pray these things as your church. In the name of Jesus, amen. God bless you.